This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know, dailygiving.org. I have been telling you guys about it now for quite a few weeks, and I'm just as excited and enthused today as I was the first day I mentioned it. The other day I woke up and got an email, as I do every day from Daily Giving, as one of their daily donors, and it said $8,003 were going to a particular organization, and that meant that we had now crossed the 8,000-person threshold of number of daily individual donors, which is just incredible. I've been watching the total creep up and up slowly over time in the 7900s, finally crossing 8,000. And hopefully that'll be 9, 10, 20, and 100,000 before we know it, owing very much to you, my wonderful listeners, going to dailygiving.org, signing up for $1 a day, and flexing that daily giving muscle. Meanwhile, an amazing episode today with famed novelist and now nonfiction author, Dara Horn. Dara is a brilliant young writer. I say young, she's around my age. We'll call that young still. And she's been very well reputed as a fiction writer for many, many years, Harvard trained, but recently came out with a book that is deadly serious and has been making the rounds on many, many different podcasts and columns. It's incredibly provocative and caused a great stir, I think in a very powerful way. And that is called People Love Dead Jews. And it's about the state of anti-Semitism, the world's disposition towards Jewish people in our world today and historically. And it's a really, really incredible read and conversation with her, the author. Meanwhile, a reminder is always to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook. Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Subscribe or follow wherever you're listening, especially in Apple. Go up to the top right corner, click on that little plus sign and start to follow. Spread the word to your friends as well. It really helps quite a bit. Questions or comments, Jews you should know at gmail.com. And now to our conversation with novelist and people love dead Jews author, Dara Horn. We are here with novelist Dara Horn. And Dara has been in the news a lot lately because of a recent book, her most recent book, People Love Dead Jews, which is a rather provocative and fascinating title, which we'll get to, of course. But meanwhile, Dara, how are you? Um, I'm very well, thank you. Um, as well as one can be at the tail end of a bottomless pandemic. How are you? <laughs> I, I guess uh, much the same, yeah. Doing, doing pretty well. And um, excited to be here with you. I've heard your name, obviously, for, for many years, you know, as a writer, as an author. And actually, your name came up in a previous interview because I interviewed Sarah Her- uh, Hurwitz, and the, the speechwriter who I believe you were at Harvard with. And uh, I think you guys were friends back in the old uh, college days, if that's correct. Oh, and still are. Still are friends, yes. Okay, great. Fantastic. So uh, she's, she was wonderful. We had a great conversation. And uh, that's, yes, she mentioned your name. And that was already a couple of years ago. So anyway, Dara, take it from the top. Tell us where you are from and what your early upbringing was like. Sure. So I, I am from Short Hills, New Jersey, no, sadly best known for its mall. Sadly, also also best known for also known for by older readers from um, Philip Ross' first book, Goodbye Columbus, which is part of it is about like a 
rich Jewish girl from Short Hills who's dating a poor Jewish boy from Newark, which, <laughs> you know, and it's like, you know, ooh, she's like the only Jewish family in Short Hills that they let her live here and she gets a nose job to get into Harvard. And like, I read this when I was a teenager and I thought it was hilarious because I went to public school in Short Hills where like probably a third of the school was Jewish. And like, I went to Harvard and yep. like, no nose job. <laughs> rather, than getting, rather than getting a nose job to go to Harvard, I learned Yiddish at Harvard. So that tells yeah. you like how much things have changed. So I'm from this town in Short Hills, New Jersey, where I actually still live. I'm extremely boring. My children are fifth generation, not only fifth generation Americans, not only fifth generation New Jersey, but fifth generation Essex County. So like, oh like here. yeah, it's kind of, yeah, we've been here for a long time. So yeah, I live in the town where I grew up. I'm that boring. Are your parents still there? Do you still have a lot of family yes, there? My parents are there. Um, my parents have, thank God, 14 grandchildren, um, all of whom are like very, I mean, the there's someone who's like, the rebel who lives far away, like 40 minutes away in Westchester, but like everyone else lives like, like I, live, I live like it's a, I live about three minutes from my parents. That's wonderful. I have four children. My sister has six children. She lives another, like, I don't know, two blocks away, but I have another sister who's, you know, another 10 minutes away. Yeah. So there's, it's, it's a very large, I mean, it's almost like a Hasidic kind of vibe to my family with like, uh, so it's like a retro kind of like shtetl vibe. Yes. Very right. Re- yes. Like I said, we're retro. We're like Tessa and Durbervilles, like five generations in Essex County. And then also like, yeah, like I said, my parents have 14 grandchildren and uh, we're basically all at their house every single day. So yeah. So this is where I grew up. I still live here. I guess, you know, probably most interested in things like my Jewish education and becoming a writer. And those are, yes, I mean, I could tell you all about. Yeah, so I was going to ask, what was your kind of early Jewish life like? I mean, Short Hills, obviously, as you mentioned, you know, in later years has has way more Jews than maybe uh, it once did. Uh, it's known now as a very Jewish town, along with many others, of course, in New Jersey. Yeah. Well, this area, yeah, this area is in, in New Jersey is, is um, it's like one of like, a couple of different, like sort of very, you know, more Jewish areas of New Jersey. Yeah. So I, I grew up, I went to, I, I, people are often surprised that I never went to a Jewish school. I went to, I did go to, I went to a mostly public schools. I did for some, for elementary school, I went to a, a private school, but not a, um, you know, it was a, you know, a secular, not Jewish private school. And I went to, I went to, all, I always went to public schools or non-Jewish schools, but, but, you know, Judaism is extremely important in my family. My mother has a PhD in Jewish studies and specifically in Jewish education. So this is something that was hugely important to my mother. My mother was, um, you know, for a while, she was a principal of a Hebrew school. She actually then went back to public school teaching, um, spent most of her career in public school teaching. But she, um, this was, you know, something that was very important to us. So I, like, so I never went to a Jewish school, but I did everything else. So what that means is, you know, I went to like, you know, the afternoon Hebrew school in the synagogue where like a lot of people maybe don't learn anything. I was the exception. I actually learned a lot there. Always went to, I went to, Jewish camps, like Camper Ma, that kind of thing. I went to, I, when I was uh, once, like I was like, oh, and, oh, I was um the Torah reader for the Hebrew school. Like they had a junior t- uh, children's congregation. Once I was 12, I started, I was reading Torah every week for, it was like a, you know, nominally paid job where I was like reading the Torah every week in the junior congregation. After seventh, like, you know, Rambat Mitzvah, we, my siblings and I started going to a program at the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York City. They had, um, it still exists. They have a program for teenagers where it's like, you know, you're taught by the starving rabbinical students. So who I've, I've actually now know some of those now no longer starving rabbinical students. <laughs> they're probably uh, right. guys, is, a little bit yeah, older. Yeah. Very nice. Like now they're my colleagues. Um, so, um, you know, so I was, yeah, I was trained by starving rabbinical students in Jewish texts. And I also, you know, so that was like once a week, that was a big commute to New York because, you know, 
where we live is not, it's about 45 minutes or an hour from New York. And so we used to, you know, drive in and out of there every Sunday. They had a, like a satellite program in the evenings that I used to go to as well. But then also like, I was sort of like, I'm not going to learn Hebrew. Like there's not enough time to really learn Hebrew. And so this was, this was not for my family. It was sort of my own volition. When I was in high school, I started taking like an Ulpan class, like a Hebrew language class at the local JCC that was like an adult education class. Now I was 15 and I didn't realize like, you know, when you like who takes adult education classes. <laughs> oh yeah, no, everybody was, yes, everyone. I was the only person in the class who wasn't retired. <laughs> so yeah, it was like me and, and all these like, you know, elderly people who had a lot of time on their hands. And I would be like, I didn't do the homework today because, you know, I'm in high school and, you know, I'm taking the SATs and they're all like filling out their little grammar charts. And I'm like, nope, not doing the homework. But I did, I did learn enough Hebrew there. Um, and I, I, you know, when I was in high school, I spent some summers in Israel. And so my Hebrew then was good enough when I got to college to major in, I was majoring in literature, but like in this department in comparative literature, like you had to choose a foreign language to focus on. So it was like you were Majoring in literature was a way of majoring in the literature of a particular language that wasn't English, basically. So I was majoring in Hebrew literature, but like within but within the literature depart, department rather than like Near Eastern studies. So, so you were reading original Hebrew works and, and things like that in in Hebrew. Yeah, yeah. And then and then what happened was as I moved through college and I was reading these works, I was just really interested in the intersection between literature and religion. It was really the most interesting thing to me. And so as I was, and maybe we can talk more about that, but as I was, and that was something that was important to me since like my days as a Torah reader when I was 12, like, you know, I felt very, you know, and also like I was already a writer at that point. I mean, you know, you're being a writer is sort of like more like being, it's not really like a career choice. It's more like a, like an, like a chronic illness, right? I mean, you know, it's like you find out your, I mean, no, it's like, it's like you find out when you're six that you have asthma and then you just sort of have to like build your life around that fact. So like, that's kind of what being a writer was like for me. So you know, I was building my life around the fact that I was a writer and trying to figure out a way to like accommodate this habit. So, you know, but, but I was, I always felt like very fortunate, even since I was a child that like, I happened to be born into this tradition that was like really into books, right. Where like, and not just really into books, but like, you know, we dance with books, we kiss books. Like, I mean, this is really like, you know, not just like, oh, I like to read, but like, there was like this total, like, obsession with books. So I felt very fortunate in that. And I was very interested in like this intersection between literature and religion. So when I was studying Hebrew literature, like I was starting with like, you know, more contemporary Israeli literature, but then I like, I kept like moving back in time toward writers who were writing like earlier in the, you know, I moved down through the 20th, back through the 20th century. And I hit this point where I was reading works by writers who in the early, like late 19th, early 20th century Hebrew writers. And these were writers who like I would read their work and I like, I would understand every word in a sentence, but I still didn't understand what they meant. Just like the way they were using grammar was strange. The vocabulary they were using was strange. And, you know, eventually I got to this point where I realized I'm like, these people are writing in Hebrew, like contemporary, like, like they were writing like modern Hebrew fiction, but like they were writing it before Hebrew was revived as a social, as a spoken language. So what I eventually realized was like, you know, and this was in the, you know, in the Eastern European tradition, I was like, these are people who are writing in Hebrew, but they're thinking in Yiddish. And so at that point, this is when I was in college, I started learning Yiddish because I was like, the only reason I was learning Yiddish was to improve my Hebrew, like not to improve my like contemporary Hebrew for which it's maybe not that useful, but like to improve my ability to read the works of these early Hebrew writers who were reviving Hebrew language. Who were so, some of the writers that, that you encountered in that sort of in that realm? This is super in the weeds. No one's heard of these people. Yosef Chaim Brenner is one person who like, I remember reading these novels by him and like, just like hitting these sentences where I'm just like, 
what are we talking about here? You know, like, and really being confused, like, you know, like we're having this long conversation about like what a word which to me means like airport security, but like somehow in this novel, it means religious faith, right? Like things like that. And I was like, I was just like confused about like many things that were happening and, and even just like basic vocabulary words. Like I remember like super simple sentence, who deber el ha'olam, right? And it's about like this guy going to hear a communist speaker, which is something they do all the time in these novels. And it's like, who deber el ha'olam means like, it literally means he spoke to the world. And I'm like, okay, they're, it's like, he's being poetic. Like, oh, he's speaking to the world. It's like, well, no, the word olam in Yiddish, it's the word oilam. It means the crowd. Like that's the word for the audience. The crew, right. And it was right, just like, right. that's what, it was just like every, every page, there was like stuff like that, where it was like, I kind of understood what they were saying, but it turned out that I didn't really understand. So yeah, Yosef Chaim Brenner. Oh, Chaim Nachman Bialik is a poet. Sure. And the thing is, I'm like, so these poems, they have meter and rhyme, but only if you pronounce them with an Ashkenazi Hebrew accent. Otherwise, they don't rhyme and they have no meter because if you pronounce them the way contemporary Israelis pronounce Hebrew, it doesn't work as a poem. So like, it was a lot of stuff like that where I'm just like, I'm just hitting this wall. Oh, um, well, Mendel and Mohar Sfarim, who wrote in both languages and, quote, translated his own works from Hebrew into English into Hebrew. Yeah, sorry, not from Yiddish into Hebrew and vice versa. But like, they're not translations. They're like adaptations. Like there's a, he would write like the same book in two languages, but it was not really the same book. And I was just like, I'm hitting a wall. Oh, oh, um, Berdachevsky, someone else like Michal Yosef Berdachevsky was another writer like this. Um, this is very deep in the weeds. I don't know how much. You're, <laughs> much you're I'm interested. Any... I mean, this is like the this is like the early history of uh, Haskalah. Yeah, yeah I mean, Fireberg. <laughs> I mean, these are like really like you know, like Israelis haven't like Israelis haven't even heard of these people, right? I mean, maybe you know, like you know, Agno and okay, people have heard of Agno, but like well, these are more these are more some of these are more interesting as um figures in like in the sort of Haskalah movement and and sort of the if, you, if you're interested in you know, European Jewish history uh, more, more than. Yes. Well, but then, it, but, but that's where it gets interesting, right? Because yes, there's the sort of beginnings of modern Hebrew literature that starts out as Haskalah, which is, is for, is Jewish, the Jewish enlightenment movement, which is like about a hundred years after the other, you know, the wider European enlightenment movement. I mean, it's about this sort of like, you know, these thinkers who are like writers and thinkers who are kind of like moving out of traditional Jewish life. But then what you have is this generation of what in Hebrew is called the Tulushim, which are like these, like, um, it means they're suspended, people who are suspended. When what that means is these are people who like leave traditional Jewish life, but then there's nowhere for them to go, right? Because like they're not accepted in like contemporary European society. And then a lot of these people end up in, you know, pre-state Israel, but it's like this sort of suspension where like they don't know. And it's just like, you know, because they, they're weaving this tradition, but their whole lives is their whole work as Hebrew writers is dependent on it. So it's this like very weird and very interesting and very weird thing that like, you know, really becomes the basis of like modern Israeli culture anyway. So, you know, but what happened was I was like, I started learning Yiddish just because I was like, I, I'm not going to understand these people's work if I don't learn Yiddish because they're all thinking in Yiddish while they're writing in Hebrew. And then the problem was that I started, not a problem, but like I started learning Yiddish and then I just like, was like, whoa, everything I thought I knew about Ashkenazi Jewish life was wrong. That was alarming to me. And then I was like, I can't stop learning about this. At this, this point, I was like a senior in college and I'm like, I think I have to continue this because yeah, like th- this is like, this just like broke open something for me that like was like kind of shocking. And yeah, so... Well, what yeah, were some like, examples of uh, of things that you found that you were, you know, kind of off about? I was off about everything. <laughs> <laughs> like all American Jews are off. Like so, because like you know, you've you've been given this like sort of romantic like shtetl nostalgia kind of thing, 
like, first of all, you know, like, yeah, like you really don't want to live in a, a Eastern European shtetl. Like, I mean, like you really, really don't want to live there. Like, I mean, it's like living in like, you know, like a village in Afghanistan, like this run by the Taliban. So like, yeah, like, first of all, yeah, you really don't want to live there for like nine different reasons, but it's not just that it's like the richness of this literature was really different from this like kitschy image of it that you have from as English speakers in the United States. So like, the I mean, it's their engagement with this tradition is like, it's just so layered and so complex that, and it's so tied to the language. So it made me realize that a lot of what you sort of think of, I mean, I can give specific examples. I don't know how deep we want to go. Yeah, here, go but, for it. Okay. Well, so I'm going to give a super accessible example for your audience because it's something they've heard of, right? Which is the Tevi the Dairyman stories, right? Which is these stories by the writer Shalom Aleichem that like were adapted into Fiddler on the Roof. Okay. Well, the thing is like Fiddler on the Roof like left out a lot. For example, like, you know, one of the daughters kills herself. Okay. They left that out. That wasn't going to fly on Broadway. Like Muttle drops dead. That's, you know, not so great. Um, after, you know, they have this wonderful marriage and they have like four children and then Muttle suddenly drops dead and then we're back at square one. Oh, there's another daughter who like fulfills the father's dreams and marries a rich man and ends up in and like a terrifying, emotionally abusive marriage. And then the guy loses all his money in the Russo-Japanese war and they end up as slaves in a New York City sweatshop. Oh, Golda drops dead. I mean, there's a lot. Oh, Hava comes back. Oh, Hava um, um, is abandoned by her non-Jewish husband and returns to her family. Also in that episode with Hava, it turns out that she's kidnapped. This is part of, it's part of a, um, you know, like it was treated on Broadway as like, oh, this is an intermarriage. Like that's not what's happening here. There was a plan by the Tsar Nicholas, the, uh, I think it's, uh, you know, the, the Tsar, there's a, I'm going to get this wrong. It's not Nicholas. I'm sorry. It's Alexander, the Tsar Alexander III. He has this plan for how he's going to handle the, the, the Jewish problem in Russia. Did you know there was a Jewish problem in Russia? The problem is that there are Jews in Russia. Um, just spoiler alert. And the solution to the Jewish problem in Russia is we're going to kill one third of them, working on that. We're going to force one third of them to emigrate. Thank you, Tsar, Nicol- Tsar Alexander III, because that's why I live here now for my family for five generations. That was when we left, that we were part of that plan. So kill one third, get one third to emigrate and force one third to convert to Christianity. So one way they did that was by seducing young Jewish women, you know, and luring them into these marriages where then they would, you know, be forced to convert and then they would be isolated from their families. So like, that's like, that's what's happening in this story. Like, it's not like, it's not like, oh, we fell in love. And then like, we have a more liberal view than you, dad. That's not what's happening in that story at all. This is like part of a, it's a, it's a kidnapping plot. So, and she ends up at the end, she comes back. She's abandoned by the non-Jewish husband. She returns to the family. So like the message is like super clear. So, yeah, I mean, so anyway, that's just like one, but what I'm not getting into and telling you this little plot summary, like the Sparknote version of this is that like, it's all about the language because he's constantly playing with these references to Jewish sources and in really complicated and interesting ways that unveils this like whole sort of like theology of the argument between the Jews and God. And it's this wrestling with God that goes through the entire book. And it's very, it's very, um, it's tied to the language because it's like, it's all these like very sardonic kind of puns with the language and biblical references and references to the liturgy and that kind of thing. So what it made me realize is like, you know, a lot of what we think of as like, I think that there's a lot of anxiety in the American Jewish community about inauthenticity, right? That we have this idea that like some American Jewish life is somehow like in, is inauthentic or is like this like sort of like pale version of some like real Jewish life that happens like, you know, somewhere long ago or far away or whatever. But like a lot of that, um, that feeling of inauthenticity comes from the, the lack of a Jewish language, you know, because what I realized in studying this, it was in Yiddish and in Hebrew is that like, 
you know, all languages have this like archaeology of belief that's underneath the surface that native speakers don't even hear. Right. So, and it's like, it, you know, like when you say to somebody in English, like, oh, it'll happen. We'll see for better or for worse. Like you're not thinking like, oh, I'm quoting the Anglican marriage ceremony, but that's of course what you're doing. Right. Or when you say to somebody, you know, go the extra mile, you're not thinking like, oh, I'm quoting the gospels, but like, of course you are. Right. This is like Jesus says to his disciples, like, I will go one mile beyond where you've gone. Okay. So like, this, yeah, this is this archaeology of belief, and it's irrelevant whether or not the speaker believes these things or not. It's just like something that is built into the language. It comes up every time somebody sneezes, right? And, you know, in Jewish languages, those references come from the Torah. They come from the Tanakh. They come from the, the Mishnah. They come from the Gemara. They come from the, the Sidur. They come from the this whole edifice of Jewish texts going back thousands of years is where all those references are from. And there's this expectation for writers who are working in Jewish languages that like people are going to know these references, not because they have this amazing yeshiva education, but just because like they're alive and speaking this language the same way that I can talk to you as an English speaker. And you've heard the expression for better or for worse. And you haven't heard, it's not like you've heard it because you're participated in an Anglican marriage ceremony. It's because like, you know, you're an English speaker who, speaker who watches TV. So those kinds of references are just built into the language. I mean, you see them in Hebrew and you see them in like, you know, I mean, they're in contemporary Israeli Hebrew too. And they're in contemporary, like, you know, you watch Israeli TV, you hear these references and they're, um, they're very glaring. And so, you know, it's just because it's just part of the language. It's not even something that writers deliberately put there, but this was, and this goes to like where I am as a writer, because when I started writing my novels, this was what I was doing, right? I had this idea where I thought, you know, I was, I was very jealous of the writers I was studying and I wasn't jealous of their lives, which mostly sucked, but I I was (laughs) jealous of like their, their language of what they were able to do with the language, the kind of layers they were able to peel back from this like vast, like archeological, like tell of layers of languages of, of belief that they're peeling back and accessing even in ironic ways. And I was just so jealous of that. Cause I was like, wouldn't it be cool if we had this in English? Like, you know, if you could write like Jewish literature in English, that wasn't like Jewish because like, you know, the characters are Jewish or the somebody in the book is eating a bagel or something. But like, you know, that was like what made it Jewish was the language of the book and the way you were peeling back, you know, and, and the and the way the story was structured on these like Jewish texts. And so that's what I've done with, and but in a way that any English speaker can understand. So that's the challenge, right? So like, you know, that's that was what I took on for myself with writing these. I wrote five novels like this. So I have five novels that are all really building on Jewish texts in ways that are accessible to any English reader. Right, so I was going to ask you that, but you're talking about the sort of this rabbit hole, right? Of this starting with Hebrew and then that kind of catapulted you over to Yiddish. The, the realization that understanding Yiddish deeply was really a function of understanding Judaism in some way. Did that require you to sort of bone up on your own Jewish skills in terms of, you know, learning Talmudic texts or things like that in order to even just understand the references and the you know, the, the, those references that were taken for granted, as you say, in the Yiddish expressions. Um, I had a pretty good Jewish education, <clears throat> especially for somebody who never went to a Jewish school. Never went to Jewish school, <laughs> but, right? <laughs> yeah, I like, yeah, actually, my, my husband went to six years of Jewish state school. And we joke about this all the time that like, you know, who, who, who knows more about this, so, you know, than, you know, he, he or I in terms of like our educations. But yeah, no, I, I have an unusually good Jewish education. So generally, like I can read these authors and I know exactly what they're, I, I know the references. But like, you know, occasionally there'll be something I don't know. And then I go and learn about it. Yes, I, uh, you know, that's, you know, it's Salomad, right? I go and learn and whatever the reference is that I don't know. So, you know, but that said, like, I mean, so 
will I'm sure get to my new book at some point, but um, my new book does end with like, I did just start um, studying Dafyomi in this cycle wow. of Dafyomi. So um, we could talk about that, but- um, Okay, we got, we're recording on Rosh Hashanah Daf Gimel. That's the yes, end. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yes, for those who yes, are following I, at home, I'm actually a day ahead because I I was I like to read the night before in case I fall behind. So then ah. I don't really. Yes, I've yeah. So I've we're we're recording in the morning and I've already read it. So yes, that's where Daf Gimel on Rosh Hashanah. So that's where we are. <laughs> and I have um, yeah, I started this like um, and it's it's in the book why I began it and it has to do with contemporary anti-Semitism. But yeah, I did start studying Daf Yomi. So yeah, there's always more to learn. I mean. I never did Dafyomi before. I mean, I studied, I studied Talmud in some ways in some very limited fashion in the past, but like was always very frustrated by it and very found it super annoying and didn't like it. But you know, then I, I have a much, I have a different perspective now. So um, yeah, so I mean, that was you know, there were some things I had to learn, kind of, but like you know, and sometimes there would be a reference, but like generally, my education was good enough that I could, I could read it, <laughs> and I got it. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people probably wouldn't. Yeah. So now going back, you, you mentioned that kind of, you know, being a writer, it's like having asthma, which I think is a great line. It's kind of like a, a lifelong chronic illness, right? So when do you think you realized initially that you had that quote unquote chronic illness? And like, what was that epiphany? Like, oh my gosh, I'm a writer. I need to organize my life around this reality. I mean, I don't think I realized it was just sort of the reality, right? I mean, it's like I'm compulsively writing from when I was a child like all the time. And, you know, and I, and also like for me, also the writing was not, it was me, you know, I mean, I think it's different for different writers. Like I, I was never making stuff up. I was always like writing for me. Well, let me put it this way. For me, it was not about like, oh, I realize I'm a writer and I'm making up these stories. That, that was not me. So there are people who do that. I didn't write any fiction until I wrote my first novel. And that was when I was 23, 22 or 23. My first novel came out when I was 25. Wow. Um, so I was in, so I was in my twenties. Like I was not like a person who was like secretly writing short stories. What I was secretly writing was like just documentation. Um, and what I mean by that is like, okay, so when I was about six years old or so, I started realizing this like problem of what I think of as like the problem of time. And the simple explanation for that is like, you know, I would like get into bed at night as a child and be like, this day that just ended is gone now. And my question was, where did it go? And this would really upset me because I'm like, what is happening to all these days that are disappearing? And how can we like catch them? Almost like catching an animal in a trap or something. That was what I was trying to do with writing. So like from when I was a child, it was like, keeping like diaries and journals. And, you know, I think a lot of people like when they keep a diary or a journal, it's like, it's about like their personal life or their emotions or like, that's what like, they're using that to like process. Like I was like not interested at all in my own emotions. Like don't care about my, like I like nothing is more boring to me than my emotions. It's probably maybe less true now that I'm an adult, but like as a child, like that. And, and I get that like there are a lot of people who are like, you know, teenage girls who are pouring out their heart into their journal. Like that was never me. Like I was not interested in my emotions. I was just documenting. Like, I was like, literally, it was just like, it was like this super boring thing where I was just like, you know, like, here's like all the things that happened today. And it was like, not even the things that happened in my life. Like things like, you know, I overheard this amazing story from somebody at school about, or like, you know, there was like, oh, like I just heard like, there was this like thing my grandfather told me about something that happened with his father. Right. Or like, you know, I was in a museum and I saw this amazing thing in a museum. Like, it was like, just like, you know, and it was, so it wasn't like boring, like, you know, here's what I ate for lunch. It wasn't that level, but like, it was, I mean, probably pretty boring to anyone who isn't me, but like, just this like constant, like anything interesting that ever happened, I'm writing it down and I'm capturing this. 
you know, this is before social media where now it's like, you know, this is a cottage industry where people like are posting pictures of their lunch every day. Like I was ahead of the curve, right? I was doing those things before it was cool. You had your own also, private Instagram or something like that. also, right, like it was not, like now people do that as like a way of like, you know, as like a public show. Like I wasn't doing this as a, it was just for me. I was just rec- recording all this stuff. And, you know, that was like, you know, to me, and, and, and it, it goes back to when I talked at the beginning about my fascination with literature and religion. Because it's the same problem, right? Literature is like, it. Did, so let's put it this way. It didn't, first of all, it didn't occur to me that this was weird, that I was like obsessed with this problem of like disappearing days and time because I haven't been born into this tradition where I was like, had there were like 3,000 years worth of people who also were obsessed with this problem, right? And like, that's like the whole like design of Jewish life is around like reenacting the past, right? Like that's like all we ever do is like, you know, well, we also were slaves in Egypt. I'm like, were we? I'm like, that that helps me because that makes me feel better about like, you know, I'm, I'm here I'm sitting here worried about like yesterday disappeared, but apparently like 3,000 years is like not only didn't disappear, but it's still happening, right? Like and I'm and I'm a character in it. Like that was reassuring to me, right? Or like, you know, oh, we're all standing at Sinai. I'm like, I'm there. Like I'm standing. Inside. So like, you know, this was like very encouraged in the, in the tradition into which I happened to be born was very set up against this idea of like oblivion of time, right? Like it was set up a, a, it, around this like, totally different premise of like how time works even because it was like instead of like this american idea of like time being like this like right yeah linear it's cyclical instead of linear yeah yes it was more it was like a spiral spiral wouldn't say a circle because that implies there's no progress at all it's more like a spiral so you know i'm like stuck in this like long spiral like in my religious life at home versus like you know in school where like you know we're apparently like on this like big arc of progress that bends towards justice i'm like okay well i don't know that i see a lot of evidence of that but but sure let's let's do that and then you know it's like there was like these two sides of my identity of like this american side of my identity where you're supposed to you know believe in this like linear concept of time there's this whole like american mythology that like oh it doesn't matter where you came from what matters is you know what you do with this opportunities the country gives you that's the american dream like there's like that whole mythology and that was like the American side of my identity. And then there's like the Jewish side of my identity where it's like, you know, you were standing at Sinai, you know, it wasn't just the people at that time who were standing at Sinai. It was like, you know, all of their descendants, you know, were standing at Sinai. So that's like the opposite of like the American dream mythology, right? Because that's saying like, actually the most important thing in your life happened thousands of years ago and there's nothing you could do about it, right? So this is sort of like the two sides of my identity that we're competing here. And so, yeah, so that was like what made me a writer was sort of this like drama of these two. I mean, and I wouldn't have described it that way as a child. Like now I sort of see it as this like very historical drama. And like at the time, it was just like me, like living my life, like going to school and then going to Hebrew school and like noticing that like the way we're learning about time and history are like completely polar opposites in these two contexts, but not having any language to express that as a child. And so, and that was how I sort of, and or, or even as a teenager and sort of realizing like, you know, like I was sort of like, I'm interested in literature. I'm interested in the way religion undoes this problem of time. I'm interested in literature and the way that literature undoes this problem of time without like having any words to say that. So I was like, I guess I'm interested in Jewish literature. And the problem is like, when you're like 14 years old in New Jersey in like, you know, 1991, and you tell someone you're interested in Jewish literature, like they hand you a book by Philip Roth. I was like, that was like, not what I was looking for at all. Right. And that was like, you know, so that sort of led, and you know, I was always looking for something deeper than that. So yeah, and then and then what happened was like, so I was constantly like documenting all of these things that were happening to me, not even what were happening to me, but that were like things that I found interesting that I was something I read in a book, whatever it was. 
I was also extremely fortunate in that I was born into, first of all, a Jewish family that cared about this tradition and that indulged my interests in this in these problem with time and offered me a solution. But also very extremely fortunate in that I was also born into a family that was like obsessed with education, but also like obsessed with travel. And this was something like growing up, my parents like used to take, I'm one of four children and they would take us on these trips where like, you know, like not like just places like where you might think to take four kids, like, I don't know, Disney World, but like places where you would, of course, take four kids, like, you know, Cambodia or like, you know, Peru. Like it was like not a vacation unless everybody had to get a shot. Right. Like, you know, before you got on the plane, like, you you know, there was always like, you know, some sort of malaria pill that you had to take before you would get on a plane. <laughs> and like this was like something that my parents did, you know, and like to this day, I don't kind of really understand why. Like when I was growing, like my siblings and I always used to joke that like maybe they're spies because it didn't really make sense. But like, you know, this is something like you used to do. And, you know, my parents also like figured out that they had to like have some kind of strategy to like keep us from beating up the flight attendants on these long haul flights. And so they were also encouraging us to keep these journals of these trips. And um, at one point I, we went on a trip in, it was in 1992. So I was, I don't know, like 14. And was I, uh, I guess it was 14. I don't know. We, in 1992, we went on this trip that was to Jewish historical sites in Spain. This was in the reason I mentioned that it's 1992 is because it was oh, the 500 year 500, anniversary yeah, 500 of, years. of the Jews from Spain. And actually, you know, it's funny because this is the first thing I ever published was, so I kept a journal during this trip. And as I mentioned, my journals were not about like my inner feelings. They were just about like stuff I was observing. And so at some point, like my mother asked if she could, you know, if you know, she's like, what are you writing all this time? Like, how can you feel? Cause I would like, you know, fill up a blank book and then I'd ask for another blank book and fill up another blank book on like a week long trip. And my mom is like, you know, what are you writing? And I'm like, well, do you want to read it? And, you know, she was surprised that I was letting her read this, but I was like, yeah, it's not personal. It's just like about stuff. Yeah, like I'm, just, I'm just a travel vlogger, you know, vlogger. Yeah, that's <laughs> Like now I would like, you know, right. If I were like doing this now, I would have like a vlog or some stupid, right. I would be, be, you'd like, be a YouTuber nowadays. Now. I would be doing that, I guess. Like, I mean, I was writing and I cared about. It'd be like, uh, you know, Peter, do you see the Peter Santanella uh, I mean, videos? I guess I would be doing something different, right? I don't know. But like, you know, at that time I was just doing this, like, you know, and I wasn't interested in like, you know, I, I think a lot of those people, like they're very motivated by the audience. Like for me, it was kind of like, I was just doing this because I'm like, I had this like little private obsession with disappearing time. It's like very hard to explain to normal humans. Um, so, but you know, so like, you know, I, my mom was like surprised that she, you know, that I was like, yeah, you can read it. And she read it and she was like, you should publish this. And she was like, she told me to send it to Hadassah magazine because, you know, she was a subscriber to Hadassah magazine. And so, and she was like, you know, here, I'll, I'll like mark for you, like which passages you should like type up. Cause it's all like handwritten in my little journal. Right. I mean, it's like, I'm in eighth grade and she's like, I'll mark for you. Like, you know, we had just bought a computer. I mean, this is like how primitive this is. She's like, oh, I'll mark for you, which parts you should type up. And you should just like send it to them. And I was like, if I were any older, I would have been like, this is stupid. Why would I do this? Like, why would they ever like who reads the slush pile? And like, this is, you know, I would, I would not have done this. And but at that time, I was like so stupid that I was like in eighth grade. I was like, sure. And I typed all this up and I sent it to Hadassah magazine, which is like a national Jewish magazine. And they called me up and they're like, we want to publish this piece in our next issue. And I was like, OK, sure. And that was my first published piece. And it was about these like what I now know are quote Jewish heritage sites in Spain. And this is something I write about. in, And this is actually a topic I now have revisited in my new book of this whole idea of like 
sort of the sinister background behind this idea of Jewish heritage sites. So we could talk about that. But anyway, that was the first piece I ever published. And then... Um, yeah, did you ever go right back and read that piece? Or have you? I mean, I seem to recall that it was titled something like The Jews in Spain are mainly on the plane. <laughs> it's like a doctor. It, like, uh, it, like, it was that kind of piece. It was like very sardonic about like, you know, that it's like there's this like industry that's about like, you know, Jewish historical sites, but like there are no Jews here. So like it's a little and like, you know, I was in eighth grade, so I or ninth grade. Like I don't know how sophisticated I was about really understanding like the depth of this, but like now I I mean this is what I'm unpacking in my new book is this like this sort of very cynical and sinister side beside the the, the world's love of dead Jews. But I was already thinking about this in eighth grade or ninth grade. Um, and so then, like, I don't know, like, I was like a year later, I was guess in ninth grade and I won a contest um, where there was like some contest in my community in New Jersey where it was like, I think it was run by JNF where you could like win a free trip to Israel by like, it was a test about Israeli history or the history. It wasn't just, you know, the state of Israel. I think it was ancient and modern Israeli history. And I was like, I was also like, this is another thing about me. I was obsessed with trivia. Like I later in high school, I became like the captain of the high school quiz bowl team. And we would go to national tournaments. I was on local TV with like the buzzers. I was like a real <laughs> trivia dork. So I like, you know, my mom was like, oh, you should an- enter this contest about, you know, it was like this Israel history contest. And, you know, for, and it was like a, the, the structure of the contest was a quiz, like in, in Israeli history or is, or history of Israel rather. So I like, you know, and they sent out these like textbooks that you had to study. I just committed the textbook to memory because I was like, I can do this. This is easy. Like I remember like, you know, every prime minister of Israel, whatever the hell it was. I don't know. Like, oh, every Islamic dynasty that had conquered Jerusalem. Yeah. Like, oh, there was the Abbasids and then the Umayyads and the Fatimids. Like I memorized all of those. I was like, I got this, you know, and like, you know, and so I just memorized all that stuff. And then there was this contest and it was like, it actually was kind of embarrassing in the community because it was me versus all these day school kids. And the day school kids had learned this as their curriculum. And like, I housed these people and I won this contest and I got a free trip to Israel. And the problem was, this is a, a contest for high school students and I was in ninth grade. And so most of these high school trips to Israel, you weren't allowed to be in ninth grade. You were too young. So the only one I could find that would take me was a trip called March of the Living, which like that you go to Poland for, and even that one, I think I had to lie about my age or I don't think I was supposed <laughs> to be in ninth grade. I think maybe my parents convinced them to take me because like I had won this free trip and they're like, and I think it even stipulated it had to do with that year. It's like before birthright and all that. So I won this contest and, you know, and it was like, like I said, it was embarrassing for the community because like I wasn't a day school student, but also like I had, it was also embarrassing because there was nowhere to go, even though I had won this contest. And so I did this March of the Living trip. Um, and that was, it was like a two week trip where you go to Poland for a week and then you go to Israel and you go to like all these death camps. Right. And I wrote about this. And again, I was like, okay, it worked last time. I'm going to send this to Hadassah magazine and see if they'll publish it. And they did publish it. But then what happened was that piece was nominated for a national magazine award, which is the highest award in in the magazine industry. Um, And it was the first time a Jewish publication was ever nominated for that award. I was the youngest person ever nominated in the history of the award. It was like very embarrassing. Like I went to, they had this like reception at the Waldorf Astoria in New York for like all the winners. And it was like, I'm like, they're like, I don't know. It was all these like Tina Brown and I don't know, Anna Wintour and all those people. And like, I was there, I, was, I saw the braces. And like, you know, you had like a plus one, but like, yeah, we would convince them to make it a plus two. Cause like I brought my parents. <laughs> Right. Cause like, I didn't have like a date, you know, cause I was like, I don't know. I was like a sophomore in high school. I mean, it was very, yeah. So, 
So yeah, that was like how I started publishing. So like I was always a writer and I did have this very early success because then what happened was that that, you know, because of this national magazine award, I suddenly like I met a lot of other magazine editors and, and, you know, who had been judges for this competition. And then, you know, I was able to write for a lot of other magazines after that because I had had this very early exposure, which, you know, to credit to Hadassah magazine for like reading their slush pile, which like, wow, (laughs) which is fascinating. But but then you ended up going into fiction, but not till much later or a bit later after college, which is an interesting sort of jump. What made you go in that direction? Yes. Well, so, right. So that was, you know, so in, during college I was writing, you know, I thought I was gonna be a journalist because as I said, I had never made up a story before. That wasn't my thing. I was always just like obsessed with this like documentation and, you know, and I was like an editor of the college paper and I did all those, you know, every summer I was like working at, I worked at American Heritage Magazine. I worked at the new, which used to exist. I, you know, none of these magazines I think exist anymore in the same form, but I worked at the New Republic. I worked at Time. I worked at Newsweek. So like I had all those kinds of jobs during college, but then like, yeah, I was, what, what basically happened was I graduated from college. After I graduated from college, I had won a scholarship to spend a year at Cambridge University in England, which was kind of, I don't know. I was, I, I did a master's in Hebrew there. It wasn't like a great place to do a master's in Hebrew, but I, there was an amazing professor there who I, you know, really, you know, had a wonderful experience with Risa Dome, um, who I can, uh, she passed away, um, a few years ago, but, um, she was amazing, you know, and really gave me an education in Israeli literature, which I hadn't had before in college. Right? I mean, I had, but it was, her focus was more on, you know, more like 20th century Hebrew literature. And so that was really important to me, but I had this like, this is like a sort of stupid piece of the story too, which is that like, I, I got engaged when I was a senior in college. And so we were going to get married. And then what happened was like, I won the scholarship to spend this year in England. And the person I was marrying already had a job in the United States. So like, he wasn't going to like come move to England with me. And I was sort of like, you know, one thing I could do is like turn down the scholarship. But, you know, I was sort of like, I I was just like, you know, I was getting married very young and I didn't want to like feel like, oh, I'm going to, worry think for the rest of my life like oh what if I had taken this scholarship you know I threw it away like I was just like as a woman was like very nervous about like giving up opportunities for getting married and I don't know so I I, I said yes to the scholarship but the result was that I was really miserable and I was there because like you know I was marrying someone who was like living on the other side of the ocean and you know I was very lonely when I was there I wasn't so into like warm beer and soccer hooligans and you know that's like the whole social life there is like a lot of like people in pubs freaking out about soccer. I don't know. It was just like, it was a very lonely year and I had a lot of time on my hands. And that's really what happened was like, I had so much time, you know, I was doing this master's program, but it wasn't, it wasn't very taxing compared to what I'd been through in college. And so I, I, that's when I started writing the first novel, you know, because it was sort of an opportunity I had. I talked before about that idea of, I want to create, turn English into a Jewish language. And I was sort of suddenly like, I had this year where I just like had all this free time that I never had before. And I'm just like, this is an opportunity to try that. And so that was when I wrote my first novel was during that year. Um, and then I published it after I, you know, I came back to the United States. I got married, started a PhD in Yiddish and Hebrew and published the first book. Yes, I really want to flat, you know, flash ahead to the, the most recent book. Yes. But give me just a, like a, a one or two minute synopsis of the, of the novels that you've written, like what they were about. And do you feel that you accomplished that goal of creating that layered, you know, English, Jewish kind of experience? I mean, I, I, I hope I did. So yeah, I wrote five novels that were all, all of them are about Jewish life and Jewish history, but explained sort of like, uh, sort of like introduced from the inside. So, and they're on all different topics. So I have a novel about Soviet Yiddish writers and artists. Um, 
But it's also like the novel is basically it's about Marc Chagall. It's about a theft of a Chagall painting from a Jewish museum during a singles cocktail party, which was based on a theft that actually happened at the Jewish Museum in New York City. Somebody was at a Jewish singles mixer at the Jewish Museum and walked out with a million dollar painting by Marc Marc Chagall. So it was about that, but it goes back. So it's, it starts with this like heist at the Jewish Museum of this Chagall painting. But then it goes back into the life of Marc Chagall, whose first job as a young man was like at a, it, w- it was at an orphanage for Jewish children who'd been orphaned by the, so the, by the pogroms during the Russian Civil War. And at that orphanage, he taught with like all these Yiddish writers and these Yiddish writers all ended up being executed by Stalin. So I sort of, you know, so the novel goes into like, it's it's like, it has this contemporary story that's about an art heist at a museum, but then it like goes back in time and it sort of goes into this story of like, you know, and it, it asks this, of, of art and forgery and it asks this question about like, you know, what makes a piece of art worth saving, right? Because these Yiddish writers' works were not saved and Mark Chagall is like, you know, all over the world. So that's one of the novels, that's a book called The World to Come. I have a novel about Jewish spies during the American Civil War, which is also based on real people. That's a book called All Other Nights. Starts with an assassination at a Passover Seder where they poison the first cup of wa- the fourth cup of wine, but it is based on a real story and it's based on real uh, figures during the in the North and the South in the American Civil War. I have a novel about um, my most recent novel is a book called Eternal Life. That's it's about a woman who can't die. It's about a woman who's uh, you know is she's 2000 years old she's living in contemporary new jersey but she um the reason she's 2000 years old is because of a vow she made in the ancient temple in jerusalem and then the temple is destroyed and she has no way to get out of this vow and so she is and there's like this mechanism where people around her don't know that this is that she's living this eternal life like she she like ages through a normal lifetime and then she like there's a mechanism where she basically starts her life again at 18 um but she's like you know she's living and, and so it's about this woman who everybody just thinks this is like grandma in new jersey but actually she's like lived this 2000 year old life and there's this kind of adventure where one of her grandchildren is involved in like life extension research at google and is sort of like figures out that there's something weird about graham <laughs> um, but then it of course goes back into her life in ancient jerusalem and the decisions that she made that really are the decisions that the jewish people made in, in terms of like that this was this calamity of the destruction of jerusalem and how did jewish life survive that calamity and essentially you know sort of become immortal and that, that one sounds like a real throwback to your uh obsession with time and kind of you know of the, course the, all my books are about this obsession with time yeah there's another book that's about it's actually a it's a, a kidnap thriller about a software developer who gets kidnapped in post-revolutionary egypt but it actually the story goes back in time to the discovery of the cairo geniza um which is this like vast trove of documents that were discovered that is like documents the whole history of medieval Jews. And, you know, Maimonides is a character in that book. There's, but it's about this, they had, all my books have this like sort of contemporary layer that's like about something that's like, you know, it's about an art heist. It's about a kidnapping. It's about, you know, there's like, there's always like this like kind of adventure that you're part of. So like, you can always like read this book on the beach and it's just like a kidnap thriller or like a you know art heist or whatever, but like, or spy novel, they're all like that, but they all, um, they all incorporate all these Jewish sources and they do it in a way that like introduces the reader to them. It's not like, you know, it's not like it has footnotes, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's like you are brought along on this adventure. And in order to understand this adventure, these are some of the clues you have to sort of use to piece together and to solve and, and to participate in this adventure. And I bring the reader along for all of that. So no, I do think it was successful. Um, one thing that surprised me though is that like, you know, you write one book, but then it's like everybody who's reading your book is reading like a different book than the book you wrote. So, which is actually kind of great because they're often reading a better book than the book you wrote. And so what I found, it's like, I mean, I have a lot of, I have a lot of non-Jewish readers 
you know, and um, a lot of religious Christian readers, actually, because, you know, I mean, those people know the Bible. Sometimes a lot better than the Jewish readers do. So if I have books that are dealing with uh, biblical material, they often uh, are very interested in that. But, um, you know, but these are books that like, I mean, my editor, I've had the same editor for all of these books. I'm I'm at the same publishing house, Norton, and it's the same editor for all five of these books, plus now the new nonfiction books. So all six of my books, my editor is not Jewish. And I remember the first time I ever spoke with her, I remember her saying, you know, with my first novel, which again is about, you know, it's about Jewish history. Her, my first novel, she was like, I read this book and I felt like I was reading about my own life and my own family. And she said, you know, I feel that way. And she says, for me, it's like, you know, being Italian American, feeling like I'm from this like majestic culture, but that like, I'm, you know, I'm sort of separated from it by like, you know, a language I'm not like using every day. And like, you know, everything, every version of that culture that's here is like this like kitschy stuff that I don't want to be associated with. Right. But like, there's this like richness to it that is not being appreciated here. Right. And she said, you know, feeling like, you know, she's like also like being like a lapsed Roman Catholic. I felt like, you know, again, it's like I'm part of this majestic religious tradition that I can't, it's meant so much to so many people. And I feel like, I can't fully embrace it as a modern person, but it has this long shadow. And it's like, how much of it do I want in my life? She's like, I just felt like I was reading about my own life. And I think that's true. Like, I mean, literature is about communication, right? I mean, it's about being able to like, you know, that it's about curiosity and empathy about how other people and live in other ways of being in the world. Um, so that's what has happened with all my novels. Yeah, so let's tell, tell me about this latest book, which which has a very provocative title. People love dead Jews, and, and it's been all over the news. And I've seen you on the you're on the Tickful podcast, and and a number of other. Uh, I thought I saw a Federation uh, conversation going on. So there's been a lot of buzz around this particular book. What is the uh, what is it first of all, and where did it come from, and what what was your goal with it? I am sure. As a listener, you are familiar with The Forward, the long-standing Jewish publication. Well, The Forward has a new podcast called A Bintel Brief, based on the long-standing advice column in the paper. It is now turned into an audio advice column where you could get interesting answers to fascinating questions from Gina Green, who is a movement builder, very active in the Jews of Color initiative, as well as Lynn Harris, a writer and activist, also a comedian, and a former advice columnist for Glamour and other print magazines of blessed memory. A Bintel Brief, B-I-N-T-E-L, is the word Bintel Brief. Give it a listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Sure. So, yeah, well, people love dead Jews. Everyone's like, oh, it's a very provocative. I mean, they're like, it's a disturbing title. I'm like, it's not nearly as disturbing as the stuff inside the book. Right. Because that's like, you know, if you're uncomfortable, that's the intent, because this should make you very uncomfortable. So this book came from a lot of. So as I mentioned, I've always written novels. I always just like I, my whole career, I've been pushing back against the idea that Jewish identity was just defined by what other people did to the Jews. I used to at my public events at my about my novels, I used to always ask the audience, how many people here can name four concentration camps? And probably a lot of people can do that. But then I asked the same people. How many people here can name four Yiddish writers? 80% of the people murdered in the Holocaust were Yiddish speakers. This is an extremely literary culture, famously literary culture. Why do we care so much about how these people died when we don't actually care about how these people live? Okay. I had, I, in a sense, I used to always ask this question to people. I don't think I appreciated how naive I was at the time in that 
there is in, in that there is this the perverse role that Jewish that basically dead Jews play in the world's imagination was something that was like I did not fully appreciate. And that's what this book is really about. So the title comes from the the first chapter of the book, which was originally a piece I wrote for Smithsonian Magazine. This happened in 2018. Smithsonian Magazine approached me and asked me to write a piece for them about Anne Frank. And I just remember getting that request and feeling this intense sense of dread because I was like, wow, I really don't want to write about Anne Frank. And then I'm sort of like, you know, like the logical thing to do would have been to turn this assignment down. But like, you know, I'm a writer, like I'm not a logical person, like I don't do things that make sense. So I was like, why don't I want to write about this? This is interesting. Because one thing I've discovered in 20 years as a writer or 20 years as a published writer, more than that as a writer in general, or more, you know, over my many years as a writer, what I've, what I've discovered is that the uncomfortable moments are where the story is, right? Whether it's in your imagination, whether it's in your experience, whether it's in your reporting, the uncomfortable moments are where the story is. So I get this request and they're like, oh, we really want you to write this piece about Anne Frank. And I'm like, oh God, why do I have to write this piece about Anne Frank? And then I'm like, this is interesting. Why don't I want to write this? And then I remembered a news item I had read about something that happened in the Anne Frank Museum this is in earlier that year. So this is in 2018. So Anne Frank Museum, I'm sure all your listeners know what it is. You know, it's like, you know, these where Anne Frank and her family were hiding. This building is now this like blockbuster museum in Amsterdam where they get, I mean, before COVID, it was like, I don't know, 2 million visitors a year. In 2018, there was a young Jewish man who was an employee at this museum. And the museum would not allow him to wear his yarmulke to work. They made him hide it under a baseball hat. And he appealed this decision to the board of the museum and the board of the museum then deliberated for four months and finally decided to relent and let this employee wear his yarmulke to work and i had read that news story and i just thought to myself you know four months seems like a very long time for the anne frank museum to ponder whether or not it was a good idea to force a jew into hiding and i'm like you know there's something going on here that really has has that that is really not a mistake, right? It may be a PR mishap, but it's not a mistake. And what I realized is that there's this erasure that Jews are required to do of their own. That Jews are required to erase their own identity in order to participate in public conversations and in order to gain public respect. And there was I then so then I was like, this is interesting. And then I actually just like was going on Google and trying to find this news story that I had read earlier in the year. And in the process of that, I found an even stupider thing that had happened at the Anne Frank Museum like six months earlier, which is when like visitors had noticed something weird about the audio guide display. You know, like the audio guide that says like, you know, they have like 15 languages and it says English. There's a little British flag. It says Francais. There's a little French flag. They have all these languages until you get to Hebrew. Hebrew, no flag. I'm like, again. PR mishap, but not a mistake. And so they, and so like the museum has since corrected these things, but like this is a much bigger problem going on here. And the way I put it in the piece I did write for Smithsonian, my very first line of my essay about Anne Frank is people love dead Jews, living Jews, not so much. And what happened was that piece came out in Smithsonian Magazine in the fall of 2018. And about I don't know, a week after that piece came out was the shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. Within hours of that attack, the New York Times calls me and was like, we want you to write about dead Jews. And I'm just like, you know what? I, but eventually, as I put it in the book, what happened was I became the New York Times's go-to person for the emerging literary genre of synagogue shooting op-eds. 
this was not a job I applied for. Right. And I just sort of like this, you know, this is sort of like this long string of assignments where I started just thinking, you know, I noticed that all my editors at not at like mainstream publications, there's one thing they want me to write about and it's dead Jews. And I was like, this is interesting. Why is this happening? And that's what I dive into in this book is this like, and it's, it, the book travels around the world. There's a, I, t- I go to a city in China. Um, I go to, um, I go to a lot of different places. It goes to a lot, you know, there's a lot of different sort of instances of this situation, but it's basically all of this, basically this idea that there's a wider non-Jewish world that tells stories that basically that people tell stories about dead Jews that make them feel better about themselves. And that's sort of what I'm aiming in this book to expose and also to really get clarity about it because I think that it's very hard to talk about because it's very rarely articulated is this way that, that Jewish history is exploited to in a way that erases living Jews. So what do you mean that people tell it to suit themselves or to make themselves feel better? For example, I mean, I guess we're, we're dealing now, you know, we've seen in the news about Poland and their laws that they've come up with about, you know, what you're allowed to say, what you're not allowed to say. Is that an example of what you mean? Or what, let's say from a, a, the most, you know, Holocaust obviously being the most pronounced example of people, the sort of the dead Jews complex. What would be an example there of where people are trying to assuage themselves and, and maybe erase their guilt? Yeah, well, partly it's erasing guilt and that you could talk about historical sources like that. And um, so another example I give, so specifically to um, Holocaust remembrance, there's um, an example I I have in the story. I have have an essay in in the book about this Auschwitz show that was in, it was in Lower Manhattan. This was a museum show. This massive museum show was this blockbuster show that was about, it was, you know, a show about Auschwitz. It was on exhibit at the Museum of Jewish Heritage in downtown Manhattan. I, I don't think it's still there. I think it may have moved. But, you know, and the thing is that, and, and that exhibit, when it opened before the pandemic, it got like wall-to-wall news coverage, all entirely positive. And what I thought was interesting about that is that, you know, a lot of these like Holocaust museums that have been built in the past like 30 years, like the one in Washington and all that, like they're usually built by like Jewish philanthropists or like Jewish nonprofit groups. And like the premise was that like, you know, Holocaust education was going to prevent anti-Semitism, right? It was like people would come to these museums, see where hatred can lead. And then like, you know, they would then stop hating Jews. Well, I mean, 30 years later, I think we're in a position to evaluate whether or not this was effective. And I, I think we can reevaluate it. But what's interesting to me about this show and this is where we get to the cynicism. This show is not made by like these nonprofit Jewish groups. This show was created by a for-profit European company whose business is blockbuster museum shows. So if you have lived in any major city in the past 15 years, you will be familiar with their most successful show, which was the Bodies Exhibit. This was a show that was like they took cadavers, which later were revealed to have been uh procured from the Chinese government, which is probably is pretty disturbing. And they had these bodies that they apparently got from the Chinese government, which they then like cross-section and dyed and in colors and posed in different ways. And like, you know, it was teaching people about anatomy and science. Their other blockbuster show that's internationally successful is a show about the Titanic. As I put it in my piece, this is of course not a disaster porn company. It's an education company. Who could argue against education? I mean, I'm here to argue against education because I went to this exhibit and this is the thing, as I put it in my piece, I'm like, the Auschwitz show does everything right. 
you know, it's made by world-class historians, you know, it like corrects every minor flaw in every like other Holocaust exhibit I've ever seen. And it made me never want to go to any of these shows ever again. Because what you see is like, you get to the end of that. I mean, there's so many things that are bothering me about it, but like you get to the end of that show and they have like survivors talking on a loop about how you have to, how people need to love each other. And I'm like, I was just so enraged getting to the end of that show, being lectured by this exhibition about love. The Holocaust didn't happen because of a lack of love. It happened because entire societies abdicated responsibility for their own problems and blamed them on the people who have always represented since, you know, the idea of responsibility because Jews are the ones who introduced commandedness to the world. So, you know, and it's like, ooh, there's this big mystery of like, you know, why, you know, how could this happen? It was like, you know, there's a mystery here. Like, you know, people will do absolutely anything to blame their problems on other people. Full stop, the end. And it's like, you know, it just was sort of like, there was just this, like, it was so, it was this cynicism of like this for-profit company reach taking the deaths of these millions of people and using it to make this like Jesus bumper sticker of all you need is love. And it was like, and then I just like stood there and I just thought, you know, I'm a person with a PhD in Yiddish literature. I cannot remember ever reading any survivor literature in Yiddish that says that all you need is love. Like when you read survivor literature in Yiddish, they talk about their destroyed hundred centuries old Jewish communities. They talk about the loss of a Jewish language, right? They talk about like the destruction of thousands, a thousand years of European Jewish civilization. That is not relevant here. Here we're like turning dead Jews into a happy lesson about humanity. So very similar with um, the way that Anne Frank's memory is used, right? So you have this like, the most famous line from Anne Frank's diary is this line where it's like, you know, I believe in spite of every, I still believe in spite of everything that people are truly good at heart, right? This is the line that's like plastered on the wall of the museum. It's like on the book jacket of the book. It's like, this is like the line that inspires us, right? By which we mean, what do we really mean by that? We mean it flatters us. It makes us feel forgiven for these like, you know, I don't know, lapses of our civilization that lead to piles of murdered girls, right? It's sort of like this, you know, oh, an, uh, a murdered Jew has offered us grace, Right. Which, you know, maybe sounds familiar. And it's sort of like, you know, the problem with this, the problem with this idea is that, like, you know, the reality is so much simpler. And Frank wrote that line about people being truly good at heart three weeks before she met people who weren't. She wrote that line in her diary three weeks before she's arrested and deported to Auschwitz. Guess what? When she's arrested and deported to, deported to Auschwitz, she met people there who were not really truly good at heart. And that's the part we don't want to hear, right? And so when I say like, you know, we tell a story that makes us feel better about ourselves. I'm going to give you a contemporary example that has nothing to do with the Holocaust. We have been teaching people in this country about, you know, there's this whole educational effort, which is, you know, way beyond the Jewish community about diversity and bigotry. And, you know, we've been educating children not to be bigoted. And the way that we do that is by saying, you know, people who are, you know, those, you know, look at like Jews or whatever group, you know, the reason you're bigoted against it is because you don't realize that they're just like you and me, right? That's the message we teach children, right? Like, oh, you know, the, oh, Jews are just like you. There are people just like you and me, you know, oh, this other group, fill in the blank, is just like you and me. And that's the message that we send to get people to like, you know, be, to not be bigoted. Okay, well, there's a couple problems with that. The first problem is just spent 3,000 years not being like everybody else. Like 
that's the sort of premise of Judaism, right? Like uncoolness is Judaism's brand. You know, we've been uncool for 3000 years since we started worshiping a bossy and bossy, unsexy, invisible God, right? Like this is what we, you're like, we were never doing whatever, we were never wanted to be just like, like the idea like, oh, Jews are just like everyone else. The whole premise of Judaism is that we're not just like everyone else, is that we are questioning what everyone else is doing, right? That's the whole premise of Judaism. So that's the first problem. The second problem is, it allows you to continue to be bigoted as long as you are being bigoted against people who aren't just like you. So the example I'll give of this, it was a contemporary example, is, you know, I was asked by the New York Times to write about the shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, a liberal synagogue where people have, you know, wear regular haircuts. You know, I was asked to write about this shooting at the synagogue in San Diego, which was a Chabad shul, but the people who were shot were not Chabad. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You know what I wasn't asked to write about by the New York Times? The shooting in Jersey City, which was a Sutmer grocery store where somebody went and like, you know, blew away these people. Then, and also the Muncie stabbing where somebody walked into the, again, right before the pandemic, walked into a crowded Hanukkah party with a four foot long machete and started like, you know, hacking people. Okay. I was not asked by the New York Times to write about these attacks. And what I found fascinating was I read the news reports on these attacks on the Hasidic community. I could not find a news report about these attacks that did not say something derogatory about the community being attacked in the process of reporting the attack. Like you read about this, like, you know, slash, you know, in Jersey City, they're like, well, you know, this Jewish community, you know, they moved into this area. You know, this was part of, you know, they're gentrifying a minority neighborhood. And I'm like, well, okay, first of all, that's a little strange because these people are actually in Jersey City because they're fleeing gentrification. They moved out of, they were priced out of Brooklyn, right? Number one. And number two, like these people are highly visible members of the world's most historically persecuted minority, right? This is not like, you know, the unharassed majority here. Like, oh, they're gentr. And number two, number three, is there really this murderous rage against gentrification? Because are people walking into blue bottle coffee with uh, automatic weapons and blowing away white hipsters? Because I don't see that happening. I don't think gentrification is the problem here. Same thing with the attack in Muncie. Like every single article about the attack in Muncie was like, oh, you know, there was this zoning battle between Hasidic and non-Hasidic residents, which first of all, irrelevant because the perpetrator was from a town 45 minutes away. So I don't think he was expressing his uh, dislike with the town council. Second of all, do we normally resolve municipal disputes with the machete because silly me i left mine at home when i went to the last school board meeting like why are we pretending that this is okay because the and then what i realized is like the only reason that these news articles are writing it this way is to send a signal to the public that these people deserve it and that is the limits of what we have taught children about diversity we have taught them we've sold them a false bill of goods that diversity is about you know people who are from a lot of different backgrounds but who see things our way Right. The, the melting pot instead of the salad bowl kind of uh Well, it's not even just that. It's, the, it's this idea that like there are some people that it's totally fine to hate. That's what we're really teaching. And, you know, that's think that you'll be, and it's because we have sold people this story that like the reason we don't hate Jews is because Jews are just like everybody else. It's like, well, but then the problem is what if they're not like everybody else? And I think that's the failure and that's the larger society. It shows the limits of the idea of diversity. And I think we can do better. I think we can make have a conversation about diversity where it's about like what lots of different cultures really bring to the table because and I think that Judaism and Jewish culture has a lot to bring to that conversation because Judaism is a counterculture right it is a counterculture that weaves its way through the history of the west and exists throughout the history of the west and really calls into question 
a lot of the premises of the history of the West. And I think that that's something that is really worth talking about and where you have a lot of wisdom to draw from. Why do you think people love dead Jews? Like I said, because it makes them feel better about themselves, right? Like that's like, if you notice there's this pattern we have now and it's like, it happens like whenever like, you know, there's like some person in Washington or some celebrity who like says something like vaguely anti-Semitic or anti-Israel, like the solution is like, let's drag them to the Holocaust Museum. Well, yeah, because that costs them nothing, right? Like how hard is it to say like, you know, Nazis are bad. Okay, we can all get behind that. Nazis are bad. But like that does not require you to engage with living Jews, which would, you know, like I said, would would mean something different. It would mean like talking to people who maybe don't agree with you. It would mean talking to people who maybe have different beliefs than you. It would mean talking to people that have a different perspective on history than you have. It would require actual work. You know, it's something very, there is emotional work that is being done by this idea that like, oh, I learned about the Holocaust and therefore I'm a better person. You know what? Because next to the Nazis, we all look pretty great, right? Like, that's what I mean when I say people tell stories about dead Jews that make them feel better about themselves because like, we all look great compared to Hitler, right? I mean, like, and this is the problem. It's like, you know, there's this idea that like, oh, it's really important for us to learn about the Holocaust because, you know, those who forget history are bound to repeat it. Like, okay, true, fair, fine. But like, the problem is like, what that has come to mean is that like anything short of the Holocaust is like not the Holocaust. Like the bar is a little bit high. And to me, that's the real problem. It's like, you know, you're not really, there's something so cost-free about it. And I think that that's the same dynamic you see in other parts of the world. There, I mean, I just, and I, this was, it's, it's in my book, but I also wrote about it recently in a piece in the New York Times about the last Jew of Afghanistan, where, you know, there's this like dynamic that goes on. There are many, many countries in the world that have basically destroyed their Jewish communities or expelled their Jewish communities. And maybe there's one Jew left or, or very few. The entire Arab, Arab world, basically, if you think about it. At this point, yes, almost the entire Arab world, the yeah. whole Arab world, absolutely the whole the whole Muslim world, you know, a lot of Europe as well, and you know, there's like you know vast swaths of the world where there are no Jews, but that where now the local government or population is like they pine for the dead Jews, and you know they're making a museum or whatever, like you know, and it's like you know, and the way I put it in the book is like you know these places are called Jewish heritage sites, and that is like that term is like a brilliant piece of marketing because you know it sounds so much better than like property seized from dead or expelled Jews. Like who wants to go to that? Right. So, I mean, but like what you see when you go to these places is like they're, you know, and look, some of these places, and I said this in my New York times piece and I say it in the book are maintained by like sincere and learned people with like huge research and profound courage and bravo to those people. I have nothing against this. I'm not claiming that like these Jewish historical sites should be put to seed or something like that. That's not what I'm arguing at all. I'm arguing that there are better and worse ways to do this. And there are serious ways to do this and cynical ways to do this. And I think that when you go to the cynical ways to do this, I think we can demand better. What's the response been like to this to the book? Have people, you know, pushed back? Have people, have you hit a nerve with many people who are disturbed by your sort of rocking the boat on this question? Um, I haven't had a lot of people who, I, I've actually been pleasantly surprised. I was expecting a lot of like trolling and that kind of thing. I haven't actually had that. The what, what I have seen is I've gotten an enormous amount of mail from readers, from Jewish and non-Jewish readers, but who have been like, you articulated something I felt my entire life and I never had the words for it. Thank you. And normally it is very gratifying for me to get like mail from readers who are like, I love your book. I have to say in this case, it's like, <laughs> I mean, it's nice that people are, read, are, 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 are you know reading my book and, and, and appreciate it. But like, 
it's upsetting because it really means like, you know, yeah, no, this was not in my head. Like this is every single person is thinking this. And it's also like what shocked me is like the range of people who think who have been sending me mail. Like I'll hear from like, you know, 70 year old rabbi whose parents were Holocaust survivors. And this has bothered me my whole life. But then from like, you know, 20 year old kid who like, you know, has one Jewish grandparent has zero Jewish education. And it's like, no, I felt uncomfortable about this my whole life. And I never knew why. Like just the range of people who have, for whom, like, as you said, this hit a nerve. And also like, and non-Jewish readers who like see in this, like a deeper problem with our broader society, right? I mean, that like, I've had non-Jewish readers who wrote to me that are like, this reminds me of like the way Native American history is abused. I'm like, yeah, it sure does. Um, I was recently um, on a podcast called Tell Us the Truth, which was about, it's a podcast that's like kind of about like, um, you know, as what we now call, I guess, marginalized identities or something like that. And, you know, I'm having this conversation with this man who's, you know, the, the man who's the host of the podcast. And, you know, we're having a conversation about Black history and about like the ways that like, you know, people are like, yay, Martin Luther King. We checked that box. We had Martin Luther King Day. We're good. Right. I mean, like, you know, and I, you know, there is an argument to be made that like, you know, anti-Semitism is different from other forms of bigotry, which it is. And the reason it is, is because unlike other forms of bigotry, it's not just about looking down at people. It's, it's a conspiracy theory. Right. Anti-Semitism is a conspiracy theory. And that's why, like, it sort of has a larger impact on societies that goes beyond just Jews. So that is a, a meaningful difference between anti-Semitism and other types of bigotry. But what I've really encountered with this book is that, like, how similar it is to other types of bigotry. Like, it really isn't that different. It really is systemic. It really is something that's built into the way we teach children. You know, and it's it's been very it's been very shocking for me to sort of see that, and and also like in other parts of the world, like I remember um getting mail after my piece about the last two of Afghanistan from Afghans who are like, yeah, like this is the problem with like the Taliban is like you know this is very this is un Afghan because Af- you know Afghan society was always this like mosaic of people from lots of different beliefs and cultures and like you know it was always this like colorful place that was like from you know with you know and diverse. And that's what's been eliminated, right, is the diversity. And like, you know, yeah, I've heard from many different types of readers about this. And it's really, I mean, like I said, it's like always nice to have people like your book. But in this case, it's like, I kind of, I kind of wish fewer people liked this book. Has writing this book changed you in some way? Just delving into these, this incredibly cynical and, and, and almost maddening reality. Has it shaped your own Jewish identity in some way? It's made me braver. Because it's made me aware of how much we self-edit, right? And that we self-edit all the time. And, you know, it's not just in open ways of self-editing where it's like, oh, I'm going to put my yarmulke on, I'm going to wear a baseball hat under this yarmulke while I'm at this, like, campground in Wisconsin. Like, it's not just that. Like, it's not like... Guilty as charged, Dara. <laughs> yes, like, yeah, I don't think anybody who wears a yarmulke on a regular basis has never, like, put on a baseball hat. Like, it's, yeah. <laughs> But like, not just that, it's much more subtle ways that we edit ourselves. Like that idea that like, you know, like I had this conversation last night with uh, Abe Foxman and this uh, it was a conversation sponsored by Jewish Week Confederation. You know, we had some disagreements. I'm sure. Um, but was, <laughs> yes. But what was interesting was, um, you know, there was some point in that conversation where I, you know, he was like, well, you know, we were talking about like, what do you do about this? And I said, think if we like taught people, you know, think about like what's in the social studies textbook about Jews. Like public school social studies textbook, if it has ancient history in that textbook, then there'll be a paragraph about the Israelites, which, you know, they don't even mention that the Israelites, by the way, are Jews. That doesn't come up. They might as well be, you know, the Phoenicians. They're like people from a long time ago who are dead. Like, who cares? 
And then there's a chapter at the end of the social studies textbook about the Holocaust. So it's like, you know, Jews are people who get murdered and we're supposed to learn something from their murders. Like that the purpose of Jews is like for their murders to teach us something. Like that's the role they play. And I was just like, you know, what if we were to teach people about the role of Jews in the history of the West, right? Like, because I'll tell you that like, you know, one thing that happened in my family that like in our public school district in sixth grade, they do ancient civilizations in social studies. And each of my kids as they've been through sixth grade has had this conversation with me where at some point during the year, they come home from school and they're like, you know, I'm learning about all these great civilizations in school. We learned about ancient Egypt. We learned about ancient Babylonia. We learned about ancient Persia. We learned about ancient Greece. We learned about ancient Rome. We're learning about all these amazing, you know, contributions and achievements of these great civilizations. But at home for each of these great civilizations, we have a holiday about how they tried to kill us. So mom, I'm confused. Are these great civilizations or are they not? And I'm like, yes, this is the interesting piece. And it's not, it's very similar to the way we're right now in this like conversation we're having about race in this country, about reevaluating the way we think about American history, like including that counterculture on our way would upend like the way we think about the history of the West. Um, and there was a point in this conversation where I was speaking with a Foxman who you know, was the head of the Anti-Defamation League, spent you know 50 years in advocacy. And I was like, I think that we should be teaching Jewish history as part of the history of the West instead of just like, you know, having this chapter at the end of the book that tells people about the Holocaust. And he was like, oh, you know, that's really too big an ask, you know, because like, you know, there are all these other groups. We're so small. And I'm like, why are you erasing yourself? Why are you erasing yourself? Because we're not so small. We're the foundation of Western civilization. Most of the world follows a religion that's based on ours. Right? Like, you can't understand the history of the West without understanding Jewish civilization. It's the basis of the whole, of all of Western civilization. This is not, like, a small thing. This isn't like, oh, there's a few people. This is like, you know, and also, like, all of the civilization has a lot of ways to find themselves against Judaism. So, like, let's talk about that. Like, and then he's like, oh, that's such a big lift. And I was like, it's not a, but, like, somehow, like, you know, your years of advocacy got them to put this Holocaust curriculum into the, into the school curriculum we we did that like we can do this like we can change this conversation it is something we can do oh maybe that just proves your point people are willing to put the holocaust in there but not the the living contributions you know of the people yes i mean i think that unfortunately i might be right about my thesis as expressed in the title of my book which is that people want to tell the story that makes them feel better about themselves right that's what's the story they want to tell because otherwise it upends everything you thought you knew about the world. Like it, it ruins everything. Like another very small example I'll give, which is not in the book. Like, like I talk about like including Jewish history in the history of the West. Like think about like what you learn about literacy in school, right? You learn about the history of literacy. You learn about like that, like before the printing press and before technology, you know, before, I'm sorry, before the printing press and before the industrial revolution, like nobody knew how to read, right? Only like the clergy and the nobles and the royalty knew how to read. But like, you know, it was impossible for poor people to learn how to read until the printing press made it possible in the industrial revolution. Well, the problem with that is that in Jewish culture, you had universal male literacy since ancient times. Like, you know, poor kids in rural eighth century Libya knew how to read. So like, you know, because, you know, it turns out that actually what you need for universal literacy is not wealth or technology. You just need a culture where people think reading is important. That's what you need. So like, you know, if you were to include that story 
that like under you know that that just sort of under undermines everything you thought you were worrying about like oh technology progress blah blah like you know that's the problem and i think that's one of the reasons like you know people don't want to include this first of all because they don't know but also you know it kind of ruins everything if you know those things because you realize larger failures of civilization because you realize what could have been yeah it, it makes uh, it it people can feel guilty by by uh, contrast and and realize that their own inadequacies you know and it, it sort of dispels their own excuses for shortcomings and when you look up against it and that's what you said earlier that as i think hitler himself had said that you know judaism uh, crime against humanity was inflicting consciousness you know in the world and um you know in a sense yes the conscience of the world people don't always want to face up to that no it's like you know people like really like that's like you know like it's not like a mystery why the Holocaust happened. The Holocaust happened because people advocated responsibility for their own problems and wanted to blame their problems on somebody else. Like the thing people are most afraid of is responsibility. And unfortunately, unfortunately, the whole basis of Judaism is responsibility. Yeah, just in closing, because we've gone on so long. Tell us about your podcast that you referenced to me off air before we got on, because it sounds really, really interesting. And I think it's sort of related to the, the latest book. Oh, it's completely related. Yeah. So, um, I do. Yes. So for your listeners who obviously enjoy listening to podcasts, um, I have a podcast called um, it's called Adventures with Dead Jews. And it is um, it is not the same as the book. It's telling different stories that don't appear in the book, mainly because they were way too weird to be included in the book. But it's very much on the same theme. So, I mean, I have episodes like I actually just like, for example, there's an episode that's about the movie Schindler's List, revisiting the movie Schindler's List, which Spielberg made simultaneously to making the movie Jurassic Park. And in that episode, I sort of kind of compare the two movies and they're amazingly similar and sort of talk about like, what is the role? Like, what does it mean to like insert the story of the Holocaust into like this Hollywood narrative where you have to like have a happy ending? Um, what does that require of us as viewers? What are, how are we participating in that story? What does that tell us about the way we want to think about Jewish history in public? So that's like, a, that's one example. Um, I have another episode that's about the, um, a bizarre Japanese attempt to create a Jewish state in Manchuria. Um, this is something that like, I have a chapter in my book about this Chinese city um, in what used to be called Manchuria in Northeastern China that was built by Jews. So this is like something that like, I couldn't fit it into the book because it was like way too weird. It's literally about these like Japanese military officers who like read all this anti-Semitic literature and believed it. And were like, ooh, these Jews are like diabolical and controlling the world. How can we get a piece of that? And they were like, here's what we need to do. We need to like create our own Jewish state so that we can like exploit their diabolical brain power. Like I could not make this up, right? It's like the most bizarre, bizarre thing. So, I mean, they sent somebody on a fact-finding mission to Palestine. Like they literally sent this like Japanese military officer on his own like little like 1927 birthright tour. Like it's very, very weird. So <laughs> I have an episode about that. Some of it is drawn from research I did for my novels. Um, I have an episode about about the Cairo Geniza um, and about I have an episode about Jewish spies during the Civil War, about uh, specifically about Judah, Judah Benjamin, who was the Secretary of State of the Confederacy. I have an episode I'm dropping tomorrow that's about this uh, 1947 movie that swept the Oscars in 1947, was like massive box office hit called a Gen The Gentleman's Agreement. That's about, um, it was about, it's an anti-anti-Semitism movie. And I tie that back to sort of like the history of what makes Jews acceptable in the West and sort of like why what kind of bigotry we're okay with fighting against. I have an episode about a Soviet Yiddish actor, you know, who sort of like was promoted to the skies by Stalin during World War II and traveled the world raising money for the, for the Red Army um, and this uh, very horrible fate that he ended up meeting in the Soviet Union. Um, so it's like, yeah, it's a lot of like bonkers stories that are like, and I will tell you that the tone is 
I mean, it's like the book, but it's funnier. The production team, they chose the background music by listening to all the background music from the TV show Curb Your Enthusiasm and <laughs> tracking down those composers. So that tells you something about the tone. So yeah, so there's the book, People Love Dead Jews, and then there's the um, the podcast, Adventures with Dead Jews. So two, diff- two different sets of stories. Horn, novelist, recent nonfiction author, now podcaster, and uh, profoundly thoughtful Jew. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And just a final reminder to join me, along with almost 8,000 other people, as a daily donor to dailygiving.org. You will be thrilled with yourself for days, months, and years to come. Dailygiving.org, proud sponsor of Jews You Should Know. Please join me in signing up right now. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.